Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, we talk with Aaron Stanhill, Principal at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. We invited Aaron on the podcast after reading his paper, The Great Inflation Factors and Stock Returns, in which he discusses inflation from a historical perspective, the drivers of inflation, how equities perform in different inflationary environments, and what investment factors work best during periods of low, medium, and high inflation. Given what we're seeing in today's market with inflation, we think this is a timely and important discussion. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with OSAM's Aaron Stanhill. Aaron, hello. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. I guess to start off, uh, congratulations is in order. I think you're the first person we've talked to from OSAM since the announced acquisition by Franklin Templeton. So congratulations to you and the team over there. Yeah, thank you. We're, uh, we're super excited about it for sure. The other thing I want to say just before we get into stuff is, um, you know, I'm a subscriber to your uh, factorinvestor.com blog. And I just, you know, to start out, I think it's just letting our listeners know that that's a really good resource. You do a good job with your, your daily look email. It may not come out daily, but you know, I appreciate the work that goes into that and, uh, digesting about what's going on in the market and trying to relate it to factors and all the, all the good information that you're putting out of there. So thanks for that. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It sort of started out as uh, as daily. I, I should have thought about the name in the middle of the the crisis, and uh, yeah, it's 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 lacked a little bit, but but I'm still putting them out periodically. Yeah, good stuff, good stuff. Um, so I think the major topic we're going to talk about today is going to be around inflation, and you wrote a uh, you know really good and timely piece titled "The Great Inflation Factors and in Stock Returns." And in the paper, you looked at the history of inflation in the United States and the various regimes that we've been through um, over the past 100 years and talked about inflation during those times. So I thought just to start to set a baseline, if you could talk about, you know, just what the average inflation rate has been over time, what some of the highs and lows look like, and then we could kind of get into the details uh, underneath the surface. Yeah, um, you know, inflation's to start off is just kind of a weird thing. Nobody knows exactly what drives it over time. It obviously has tons of structural drivers um, and it's, it's varied pretty, pretty widely. Um, so, you know, the most common way to look at it is back to 1926 in the U.S. We can certainly look at it on a global basis. It's different in every country. Um, but in the U.S., you kind of had um, inflation pre-World War II that it, it oscillated a lot. Um, you know, you had the Great Depression, where it was negative, uh, down to like negative 11% or so for a period of time in the 30s. Then post-World War II, it kind of spiked up to 20%. Then we had this period of the Great Inflation in the 70s. That's now all of a sudden topical again for 15 years, where it peaked around 15%. But kind of since then, it's it's kind of been about 2%. Um, it's been kind of like between 1 and 5, but 2, you know, overall, the long-term average back to 26 is it's kind of about 3%. And by the way, we'll put charts because your uh, paper is full of some really good visuals. So we'll try to, when we can, when we're talking about these things, if it's okay for with you, um, we'll pull some of these yeah, charts in um, to try to show. And that was one of the things that I found interesting when I looked at the trend in inflation. It was very volatile there, like pre-1950s. And then it sort of, you know, sort of flattened out, but then went higher in the 70s. And we'll talk about all this, but that was... It was something that really stood out to me, that volatility of the inflation rate um, in the first half of the uh, century, I guess. When what was, was really kind of like driving it was um, effectively the, the gold standard um, in the Great Depression, where there was this idea coming out of the 1800s that we needed to be on a gold standard. Um, and that has massive issues if you're within a, a growing economy where it's monetary regime, coin, whatever it is, pre-fiat, is restricted effectively by the growth in its supply. So if you're not mining enough gold, your money supply can't grow with the economy. 
So it sort of becomes inherently deflationary. So you get these massive shocks that occur over time. Um, so that's, that's ultimately what's, what's really driving it. Yeah. And in the paper you broke, um, you really broke this, these, this into two, two groups. You had the Brentwood system period. I think that's what you're referring to here. And then you had the post Nixon shock period, which is when we moved off the gold standard. So could you just talk about those two period? Maybe you talked about the first one already, but you know, in the second period or time frame, at least how it impacted inflation. Yeah, so, um, so the one I was just talking about is kind of even like pre-World War II, really kind of, you know, uh, 20s and even pre-World War I up until, up until World War II. So Bretton Woods was basically established um, in the mid-1940s, and it was basically to, to reconstruct the world effectively. And the logic was, in order for there to be capital, in order to reconstruct the world, it needed to be able to flow freely. So let's take some risk off the table and not have these massive fluctuations in foreign exchange rates. Um, because obviously foreign exchange rates have a lot to do with um, real economic growth and inflation. So let's just take that off, take that off the table effectively. Um, and so that's what Bretton Woods did, where um, other currencies were effectively pegged to the dollar and the dollar was pegged to gold. So the dollar kind of acted as this intermediary and um, you know that that's pretty important for a, a lot of reasons. The U.S. effectively put itself in the middle of the global monetary regime, which has served the U.S. quite well um, in the ensuing decades um, and still to this day. Um, so that was a really kind of seminal moment. Another one didn't happen until the 70s. It was outside of Bretton Woods, but um, Nixon, in addition to breaking the uh, dollar's peg with gold, um, he made an agreement with the Shah of Iran to price oil in U.S. dollars. So prior to um, the Nixon shock era, there was a tremendous demand for dollars, which had um, sort of some of the underpinnings and what caused inflation in the 70s. And then even after that, though, you have the whole idea of the petrodollar, which is that oil needs to be traded in dollars. Um, everybody needs oil, so everybody needs access to dollars as well. Um, so two kind of like important agreements that occurred that sort of put the dollar in the center of the monetary landscape in, in very different ways, um, but, but both very, very important. So, um, so again, so Bretton Woods was really to, to kind of reconstruct the world, but it kind of outlasted its usefulness where eventually the dollar became so strong, uh, that speculators effectively were betting, um, that it was going to be devalued. So during the Nixon shock era, uh, moment in the early 1970s, um, there was kind of a minor devaluation and there was kind of a, um, removal of, of the gold window, effectively exchangeability for gold for the dollar. Um, and then there were some other kind of like loose agreements was the symphony agreements, but what it ended up doing is, is that other countries needed to effectively go into the FX market, um, and intervene to support the value of the dollar to maintain the peg, which they got tired of doing. Um, because what it was effectively doing is they were defending an overpriced currency. Um, so that lasted, let's say like, I think it might've been like two years at the most. And then after that, we've sort of moved into this period where we have free floating exchange rates. That's really interesting. You know, it's, it's, well, you hear so much talk about inflation today, but I think a lot of people don't know that historical context. So that's, I think that's really important to sort of bring into the picture. Um, we're going to talk more about sort of the history of, of inflation and how it relates to today. But before we do that, I want to just talk about a, at a high level about where we are now. Um, you know, can, based on what happened today, I guess I'm no longer able to use the word transitory. Um, right. I guess Powell has decided they're not going to use that anymore. But I, I do want to ask just if you could talk at a high level about, you know, some people think we're in for an extended period of high inflation here. And some people think we're in for maybe a temporary instead of transitory. Uh, a period here. And I was wondering if you could maybe, you've looked at history, a lot of inflation. I'm wondering if you could maybe put it into context and what you think about sort of where we are right now. Um, you know, so I'd say I'd, I'm definitely in the transitory camp. Uh, I think that there are some, some key drivers of long run structural inflation. Uh, and I talk about some of them in the paper, but things like labor, 
fiscal policy, monetary policy, energy policy is a really important one as well. Um, and kind of just sort of understanding the, the drivers then. So um, drivers from, from an economic perspective. So things like spending, employment, uh, housing is actually a huge one uh, as well. It's a huge portion of the CPI basket. And when you kind of look, so look at all these things currently, yes, they're higher, certainly from where we were 2020. The comps are really easy um, on a year-over-year -year basis, but the, they're kind of increasing at a decelerating rate. Um, so if you look at things like um, like housing, so new permits peaked earlier this year, new permits for uh, permits for new construction peaked earlier this year. Um, when you look at existing home sales, the rate of growth is decelerating. Um, uh, Case Schiller just came out earlier today. It was at its you know slowest rate of growth in the last couple months. You know, so you're kind of starting to see this happen. Lumber is down 50% from that massive spike that occurred earlier in the year. Oil is down 20% in the last two weeks. You know, so you kind of look at all these things that are kind of real-time proxies for what inflation should be. Um, there's slack in the employ in, uh, employment. Uh, there are more jobs available than there's ever been in the history of the, the JOLT survey. Um, you know, so those things kind of, to me, all say we're not running at capacity. It's another difference between today and the 70s is there's this whole idea of sort of the capacity of the economy. Um, and we're not quite there relative to where we were in the seventies and this during the seventies, we were operating sort of above capacity. Uh, and now we're, we're, we're pretty substantially below it. So when you kind of look at all those things, I, I definitely understand why prices have gone up. Um, there are lots of shortages from a supply chain perspective. We've all heard the stories about the hundreds of ships and ports, you know, waiting outside and the lack of workers and the lack of trucks to load them and all this stuff. But that's not that's not structural inflation. It might last another couple quarters, um, but it, but it's not quite inflation yet. I think that the challenge, though, is sort of how it impacts the way that people are thinking, because how people are thinking impacts their spending and their choices, which impact prices. And so, if people were to start believing that inflation was going to run at let's pick a number eight, nine, ten percent over the next several years and start acting accordingly, it can kind of manifest itself into existence. So through inflation expectations, I don't really think that we're there quite, quite yet. Um, so I don't, I, just for me, I just find it hard to see how there's this long-term structural inflation, 70s-esque, that runs near double digits. Could we be at two, three, four, five percent for the next several years? Definitely. I think that would actually be really beneficial to the economy uh, as well. Are you thinking that used cars selling for more than new cars is probably not something that's going to be uh, sustaining long-term? Right. <laughs> right. I mean, eventually there are no used cars left to sell. <laughs> yeah, there's no new cars either. So it's, uh, yeah. yeah. Thankfully, I'm not in the market for a car right now. Um, one yeah. thing I struggle with myself that I want to ask you about is this, this whole idea that, you know, it seems like anytime we have any sort of economic problem now, and maybe even when we don't, we're going to see this aggressive use of fiscal policy. And I'm wondering, what do you, I mean, do you think that leads to a higher long-term inflation rate? You know, because we, we've really never seen, I, I don't know if we've seen it to this degree in history. And so I really struggle with where, what it's going to mean. I mean, what, what do you think that means for the long-term inflation rate? Uh, it's a really good question. I mean, the size of the, the COVID response was multiples of TARP and the global financial crisis, multiples of the New Deal. Um, you know, so the fiscal packages keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, how they've been enacted has has sort of changed where um and, and and I think how it will impact the economy moving forward will depend on how it's it's enacted as well. So in 2020, there were obviously all the stimulus checks. Those are direct transfer payments to people's bank accounts. That's one type of stimulus. What we're looking at now in terms of the infrastructure bill and the spending bill, whenever we get the the full CBO analysis of it, um, it's, it's spend and tax. So there's a little bit of give and take that exists. And you've sort of seen that starting in 2021 where the fiscal stimulus programs um, included a revenue source as well. So that's not the same as a direct um, transfer payment. And it's, so it's not quite as inflationary. The other question is, you know, what is the spending going to uh, as well? Um, I think it, 
remains to be seen sort of the impact that things like, um, uh, like clean energy, um, will have an impact on the economy because if you really think about it, it's kind of inherently deflationary. So, you know, I think the jury is out on how the infrastructure bill and the spending bill are actually going to impact things like inflation. And I don't think that there are going to be any additional packages. You know, I think this needed to occur for the Democratic Party because they're rolling into midterms next year. Approval ratings that we've all seen are very, very low. Um, so this was really needed. And just judging by the amount of time that it took them to get it passed, I think that political capital has been used up effectively. So it would be interesting to see, you know, now with, with, with Omicron, um, you know, the new variant, if we were to go into a situation where another stimulus package was needed, um, how much is there an ability to reach across the aisle to make something like that happen in a crisis scenario? I don't really know where that stands right now, but, but outside of that, I wouldn't expect additional fiscal stimulus to occur. That makes sense. Uh, you alluded earlier to the 70s, and you know that, that's sort of the thing to do right now is to compare what's going on right now to the 70s. You, know, you see it over Twitter all the time. And you, and you talked about sort of four different areas in, in the paper where now might be a little bit different than the 70s. And so I want to go through each one of them individually and maybe see if you could talk about how now might vary a little bit from what went on in the 70s. And, and the first one was sure. we were just talking about, which is fiscal policy. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, look, I mean, fiscal policy was was so incredibly different in the 70s um, and just the, the structural setup as a whole. Um, you had um, Johnson's Great Society, so there was massive fiscal spending around that, around social programs. You had the Vietnam War um, that was going on. So you were we were running massive deficits. Um, and again, also at this time where um, for, the, for the, the first period prior to the uh, around 1972 or so, um, the dollar was effectively pegged to gold. Um, so, so that was all very inflationary. It had lots of impacts. Taxes were much, much higher um, at the personal level and the corporate level. A lot of people don't really associate taxes with inflation, um, but there's, there's kind of this um, implicit link that exists um, and sort of how taxes are structured. So in the kind of going back a little bit earlier to let's say like like world war ii you had um all the soldiers came home needed to be employed you had the rise of unions through the 1950s um and the uh, early 1960s which kind of peaked around 1965 about a third of the u.s population um was unionized it's it's about a third of that today so it's much much lower think unions, think negotiated bargaining power in terms of wages. So wages were going up and you see that in all the charts that you, that you look at. The challenge though, is that if your wages are going up and inflation is running at, you know, 10 plus percent, and there are no cost of living adjustments to tax brackets, you sort of got this push pull effect where your wages are going up, but your taxes are also going up. So between 1965 and 1980, um, the average tax rate, um, or I should say the tax rate on the average workers went up 50 plus percent. So, um, so that's a, that's a challenge. And then on top of that, from a corporate perspective, when you're running, um, in terms of a period that's highly inflationary, inflation is really a tax on your, on your top line. So your revenue versus taxes, uh, uh, you know, explicit taxes are, are effectively on your bottom line. So what ends up happening is, is when you look at the real tax that you're paying as a corporation, in a lot of cases, it can be 100, over 100% of your earnings. Okay, so why is that important? So then all of a sudden, you don't want to be generating income. And so you're going to do things like um, conglomerate. Um, you're going to buy firms, even if they're unprofitable, you're going to buy unprofitable firms to protect your profitable firms. Personally, executives are not going to want high compensation packages. They're going to want lots of, of perks, um, like airplanes and homes and whatever it is. So there's this conspicuous spending that occurs. Everything that you can do to push everything onto the expense side um, of the income statement to push down your earnings. So all of that promotes spending. It promotes things like M&A. It pr promotes, um, you know, over overspending at the corporate level. And that's all, you know, very, very different than what we experienced today. The average tax rate was like 48%, I think, um, during that period. So massive, massive changes. In addition to the fact that there's, was really an explicit mandate, again, because of 
World War II, that employment remained high. Um, there was a fear also of communism as well. And the greatest way to avoid something like com communism influencing the population is to keep people employed um, and making money, um, chicken in every pot, you know, going back even further, thing things of that nature. So they're kind of all these like cultural and societal factors that were influencing the decisions that were being made on the fiscal side of the ledger that I think were, were all really inflationary. And then the, uh, the second thing you pointed out is the major difference was the monetary policy was very, very different. What were the major differences there? So monetary policy. So when you kind of look at it at, at the highest level, um, you know, today, you can look at something like money growth. So, so M2 growth. And so that was growing, it was growing a little bit higher in the seventies, but not too dissimilar from today. There was a choice that was effectively made. So at the time the Fed had less of, let's say less of a dual mandate. It was really technically Congress's dual mandate for employment, um, and price stability. And there was this belief in the Phillips curve, which is basically this idea that there's a trade-off between employment and inflation. If you let inflation, uh, I should say, if you try to take inflation down, you're going to have higher unemployment and vice versa. And so because of this mandate really to keep people employed, the policy perspective was let's let inflation run a bit high. Um, and it effectively then kind of got out of control. Um, but there was not a political will to tolerate unemployment to rise effectively. So that allowed it to, to run. And you can kind of really see the difference today in terms of what the effectively the economy's reaction function was where, um, there can be lots of money in the system, but if it's not used, it really doesn't matter. And so the way to measure that is the velocity of money where in the seventies, the velocity of money was increasing versus today. It's actually been decreasing, um, with all of the monetary stimulus that's been, been occurring. So it's effectively not being used, um, in, in the system today. And then the, the final two you had were all grouped together were labor and energy. Could you just talk about what was different in the seventies with those two? Yeah. So, so labor, uh, I, I kind of mentioned it briefly, but, um, you know, a third of the U S population was, was unionized. And so that pricing power, um, allowed a, a much different setup than we have today. Um, where now today we're kind of in the, um, I think it's around 15. 10 or 15% or so of the, of the population is, is unionized. I just say the labor force is unionized. Um, so very different situation, a lot less bargaining power. Um, you know, uh, there are all these conversations about raising the minimum wage, which really hasn't kept up with inflation. Um, you know, those conversations were not happening during that period of time. Uh, it was, it was quite the opposite. And so, um, so there's not this sort of upward push on a price on, uh, uh, wages. And then for energy, you know, the shale revolution happened so quickly and so fast once the technology effectively caught up where, um, during this period, you know, we were importing somewhere around 20% of our, of our energy was imported versus today we're net exporters, uh, of, of energy. And so that has tons of dynamic in terms of OPEC's influence, uh, on inflation commodity shocks that most people think about in the 1970s as well. Um, we're just a lot less susceptible to those things today. That makes sense. Uh, we're going to talk about how the market did different inflation regimes and also how factors performed the different inflation regimes. But first, I wanted to do a couple of things to set the stage. And the first is you made a really important point in the, the paper that I think we want to set up the, up front here. And that's the difference between actual inflation and expected inflation. So can you sort of talk about why that's really important? Yeah. So, um, so with inspected, uh, I should say with existing inflation, clearly it's looking back over a period. So let's say like the previous 12 months where clearly it's been very high. Now you can look at that and you can extrapolate forward and say, well, that's going to happen again in the future, but that's not necessarily always the case. What really matters is what people think inflation is going to be. If people expect inflation to be 3% and it comes in at 5%, that's meaningful. And it's some, somewhere along the way, they're going to make changes in terms of their decisions and how they're purchasing things or spending money or whatever it may be. You know, you could also be expecting 3%, but only get 1%. And so that idea of inflation expectations is really what moves markets because markets like to price things in. Um, and so if that expectation changes, just as the expectations for things like 
earnings, the most common way that we see it is on quarterly earnings. If you're expecting 10 cents and you get 15 cents, the stock goes up. If you're expecting 10 cents and you get 5 cents, the stock goes down uh, effectively. And it's very similar in terms of inflation. And in terms of setting up the different inflation regimes, you use 10 different regimes in the paper. Can you just talk about the criteria you use in terms of how you define the 10 different regimes? Yeah, so we, we took like a really simple approach, which was um, to basically measure trailing 12-month inflation. Uh, and we effectively did that on a monthly basis. We ranked them all, and then we just divided them into, into decile groups or 10% increments. So each bucket kind of has about 120 months of observations within it. Um, and then we're looking at things like the average for the bucket, which time periods sort of fall into that bucket. And we're measuring sort of coincident with it. So at the same time that that inflationary period is happening, what the return of the stock market or the factor was. So it's kind of more of an analytical exercise. It's not meant to be predictive. Um, it's just kind of uh, analytical. And what did you find in terms of how the stock market performs in, in the various inflation regimes? So, you know, as most people would expect, um, when inflation is high, equity returns are generally lower. Um, I mean, that's the case for for um, pretty much all assets except for commodities. Um, and, and so as sort of inflation ramps up, uh, equity returns generally, generally decline. That makes sense. Um, and in terms of the factors, you know, you, you found certain factors did better or worse than, you know, certain inflation regimes. But one thing I thought that was really interesting that I, that I think you found in the paper is that shareholder yields seemed to do well regardless of the inflation regime. It seemed to do well across the board. Um, why do you think that is? You know, shareholder yield is a really kind of interesting factor. Um, it is a play on the capital allocation policies of companies. So it's we think of it as the combination of a stock's dividend yield and share buybacks over the previous 12 months. And so what it really is, is it's a return of cash or return of capital to shareholders. And when you kind of think about like the menu of options that CEOs have in front of them for capital allocation, it's, it's not a long list. It's, it's like dividends, buybacks, repay debt, investing your existing business or buy another one. That's not all of them. You know, now Tesla's buying Bitcoin also, so that's a different allocation policy. Uh, but that's like, that's kind of like most of it. And when you stack up those in terms of the excess returns that they generate, particularly in the U.S. large cap space, the best by far is um, really buybacks. And when you have the combination of dividends and buybacks together, it's, it's really, really powerful. I mentioned that it's, it's a return of capital or cash to shareholders. So if you kind of think about being in a position as a company to have excess cash to return it to shareholders, that's a very powerful thing in almost any environment. And so shareholder yields, you know, I mentioned it includes dividend yield. Dividend yield is kind of like a quasi value factor. So there's this whole idea that sort of emerged in the last few years. It's a little bit spurious, doesn't work great on a longer term basis, but it did kind of during the crisis period, which is this idea that value stocks are short duration assets or shorter duration assets and growth stocks are longer duration assets, which is basically if you go back to um, sort of uh, corporate finance 101, present value analysis, think of Amazon, you know, 15 years ago, they were running loss, year, loss after loss after loss year after year, but eventually there was a payout and they started becoming profitable. You know, same thing with Google and Facebook and, and um, sort of all the, all the, the FANG stocks. Whereas value stocks, you know, it's all about their current earnings. And so if you think about those, those streams of cash flows as basically being, um, when you total them all up, the present value of them is a stock's market cap. Well, value stocks proportionally have more in sort of the shorter term cash flows and growth stocks ended up having more value in the longer term cash flows. So anyway, long way of saying shareholder yields, when you look at them on a valuation basis, they kind of tend to be in the cheapest third of stocks overall. So it's kind of a little bit of this value argument that's creeping in for why they do well. Um, and then on top of that, if you think about, again, dividends and share buybacks is sort of like an immediate return of cash that makes it an even shorter duration asset. And so in an inflationary period um, where you're both 
uh, have cash available to return to shareholders and you're repurchasing where repurchasing shares, hopefully at a cheap multiple, what it actually does is it's kind of like a secondary growth rate on your earnings per share. So you're sort of boosting earnings during a period where the market is going to be seeking earnings growth in excess of inflation. That's kind of like a powerful cocktail. So being cheap, if you believe in this shorter duration thing, um, and like a secondary growth rate as well, that's all like really, really powerful in the context of, a, of an inflationary environment. You alluded to value a little bit already, but outside of shareholder yield, what, what did you find in terms of the, how the major factors worked in, in high inflationary? So you, you kind of find value does better than growth. And the sort of logic behind it really is that um, if you're in an inflationary environment, there's got to be sort of like an extra risk premium for sort of the unknown of what inflation is going to be in the future. Is it going to continue to go up or is it going to go up and then revert again, kind of this idea of inflation expectations. So like in the seventies, you saw uh, multiples. So let's say like price to earnings basically got cut in half over, over 10, 15 years. So that's a massive headwind to equity returns. Um, and so that's generally the expectation. And you see that in other countries as well. When you have inflation that runs higher, generally multiples compress. Well, and that there's going to be that headwind. And so if you're a value stock and you're already cheaper than the overall market, theoretically, your multiple is going to compress less from an absolute perspective. Um, and so, uh, you know, multiple of 50 on your high flying growth name comes down to 25 versus if you're at 12, um, you know, there's, there's, there's less, there's less, more, more room for, uh, for error that exists there. So, um, that's kind of the logic for, for why we think that value tends to do better in those inflationary environments than, than growth or expensive names. One of the things I've noticed whenever you talk about this type of stuff, when you say, all right, a certain factor does better in a certain environment, you know, a certain inflationary environment or economic environment, the next logical step people tend to say is, all right, I'm going to start timing the factors. You know, I'm going to start using this data to say, all right, I should be in this factor at this time, or I should be in this factor at this time. And I'm wondering, based on your research, what have you found in terms of if that's a successful strategy? It's really, really hard. Uh, <laughs> we've tried to do it uh, many, many times through machine learning through factor momentum, through even moving averages, it's, it's really tough to do. And what you generally find is you might find something, but it really doesn't survive transaction costs um, or taxes. This is another huge one that people don't think about with sort of like tactical allocation type, type strategies. So we haven't, we haven't found one yet, but again, you can kind of look at historical economic cycles and kind of um, draw some inference. So like value and shareholder yield, when you're, if you can pick the bottom of the market coming out of it, value and shareholder yield do really, really well. Logic being, if you're cheap, you have ability for your multiple to expand coming out of the market. And you're usually cheap because valuations are really just the market's proxy for what your future earnings growth is going to be. So a lower multiple means your earnings are going to grow less. If you can sort of invest at the bottom of the market after it sort of reprices itself and valuations then move up, that's a really great recipe for success. For shareholder yield, um, if you are a business that has the ability to continue to return capital to shareholders at the bottom of the market, again, repurchasing EP, uh, 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 shares to, to boost EPS, that's a really powerful cocktail. Versus something like momentum, where the excess returns actually tend to be inversely correlated to value and shareholder yield, tends to do better in later stages of bull markets. Uh, quality, um, so whether you're looking at earnings quality or profitability or balance sheet strength, tends to do really well in downturns. Um, you know, like no surprise there, um, but high, higher quality companies tend to be less volatile and tend to do better in downturns. So we, there's kind of like some things that we, we know are generally the case, um, which is really helpful in conversation sort of like ex post. But if you don't know the, how the market's going to react beforehand, it's tough to sort of position accordingly. Another thing you see a lot is in terms of an inflationary environment is people try to go beyond stocks in terms of protecting themselves for inflation. And you know, you see things like gold and commodities and people wanting to incorporate those in the portfolios. Have you done any research in terms of how well those types of things work as an inflation hedge? I, 
definitely think that some of them do. I mean, um, you know, look, take what I'm going to say about these, you know, the grain of salt, just because we're, we're in, you know, an equity shop, but, you know, I think that there are some things that you can kind of go to first principles. I, I, again, because I'm an equity guy, I tend to always go to the cash flows, right? So something like real estate is really interesting in that type of environment uh, for me, because particularly when rates are really, really low, if you can lock in, let's say a 30-year mortgage right now um, and inflation were to move higher and you have the ability to benefit from the appreciation of the asset um, that's levered um, and is appreciated at the rate of inflation, finance with a very low rate, like that's a really great way to compound returns and purchasing power. Um, so I think about real estate is one of them. Um, that's just one example. They, there are so many different sort of sectors and, and areas of the real estate market, but that's, you know, kind of first principles, the, the way that it's working. Um, you know, gold is a really, really interesting one. Uh, I, I kind of think about gold, um, I think that everybody thinks about it as an inflation hedge, and I think that's true. There's, there's kind of like what I refer to as like the gold smile. It actually is a great hedge for deflationary environments as well as sort of a store of value. Um, and then in inflationary environments, people sort of flock to it as well. Um, like we saw gold appreciating in COVID as real interest rates were, were going down. You saw all those charts that were correlating real five-year rates with gold. Um, so there was really a deflationary hedge. And now everybody sort of is thinking about it and loves it as like an inflationary hedge, but it kind of hasn't really performed that way. It really hasn't performed as a great inflation hedge since the 1970s. So I think for it to to really do well, we probably would need a 70s style inflation of multi-year, mid to close to double digit inflationary um, type environment. And again, because I'm an equity guy, there's no cash flows associated with gold. So it it's not as appealing to me. There's certainly other things within the commodity space, but commodities also is so um, diverse. You know, if you buy a commodity ETF, usually what you're getting is, is oil. It's like 40% of it, of most of the commodity indexes. So um, the question there sort of becomes, do I think that oil is going to perform as well in, in the same way now that it did in the 70s or in the 80s when the world was much more heavily reliant on oil and um, the sources of oil was much more centralized in the Middle East as opposed to sort of what we were mentioning earlier where now the U.S. Um, has shale at a much lower cost and is an exporter. So there's kind of the oil dynamic. And then you've got other things too, like agricultural and um, soft metals and other precious metals and things, industrial metals and things like that. So um, there probably are some things in kind of like that real assets, asset buckets that are interesting. I'd probably want to be sort of like selective in, in which ones though. That makes sense. Uh, before we wrap up here, I just want to switch from inflation and, and ask you a couple other questions just around investing in general, because I know you guys at O'Shaughnessy have probably looked at you know, long-term data more than anybody has in terms of what works over the long-term investing. And, you know, the first thing I want to ask you about is value investing because, you know, value has been under fire. It had, it had a really rough decade, you know, depending on how you measure it, it had a really rough decade and it, it has come back a little bit, but a lot of people have sort of been saying, is something fundamentally broken in the way value investing works or, or are we measuring it completely incorrectly or, you know, did, were too many people following it and they degraded the premium or something. And I'm just wondering if, if, Based on everything you've looked at, I mean, are, are you worried about the value investing in the long term or do you think value is going to continue to work as it has in the past? Uh, I don't know when value is going to start working again. I, I do think that it will, and, and we do. Um, we still believe in it. We still invest in it. Um, you know, we believe that you need to be diversified in terms of the factors that you're exposed to. So value is one of them. It's the most important, um, but it's but it's certainly one of them. Um We've sort of, we've lived through this before. There was a 15 year period. I think it was uh, like 1945 to 1960 or thereabouts where value did really, really poorly. Um, that was measured on price to book. So it's a little bit different um, than today, uh, but it, it's happened in the past. And, you know, in the recent quarters when we're doing calls with clients, we usually do this thing, I call it a factor panel, where it's got the six factors that we invest in and we've got these decile spreads and how they performed. And in a lot of quarters, it's just sort of like noise um, where you know factors tend to work over much longer periods of time. Like one year is kind of the minimum, you know, three, five, seven is kind of 
more interesting where your, your base rates and your win rates, uh, go, go up. I think that we're sort of in this environment where there's so much reliance on fiscal monetary and geopolitical, I'll throw COVID into the geopolitical bucket that people are just more interested in the market on an absolute basis, as opposed to relative within it. I think that that will sow the seeds for some really phenomenal active returns in the future. I just don't know when, you know, that, that change is, is going to sort of occur. I think that how you measure value is really, really important. Price to book, I don't think is a particularly great way to measure value. It's, it's the historical cost of a company. And there are lots of issues with that when you dig into it, you know, number one, it's all, you know, I'll give like one example, McDonald's phenomenal company, um, is super expensive based on price to book. When you kind of like, think about that, it doesn't make a ton of sense. It's in the Russell 1000 growth indexes because of this, because they use price to book in order to define value versus growth. But if you look at it based on like operating metrics, like earning sales, cash flows, it's at least in the cheapest half, if not sometimes in the cheapest quarter or so. So like, what, what's that Delta? Well, it's just, it's all accounting. It's, you know, McDonald's has the joke is that it's, you know, a real estate company that happens to sell hamburgers. And it's really true when you dig into their financial statements where they have properties on there that they probably owned for 40 years, they're fully depreciated. And so they're technically not on their balance sheet they are. But technically, once you deduct depreciation, they're, they're not there, but it's an earnings generating asset. And that's all re reflected in price to book. And so um, what ends up happening with something like McDonald's is you depreciate all those assets. You start doing some share buybacks. Share buybacks um, kind of violate clean surplus accounting. The way that it sort of works is on the balance sheet, you repurchase shares at the market value. And it goes onto the balance sheet as a contra equity account, which means it reduces shareholder equity or book value. And so when you start doing that and we are repurchasing at market and deducting that from historical cost after depreciation and everything, your book value can go negative. It happened at Boeing, it happened to McDonald's. So it puts them in the growth indexes, but they might on operating metrics like earning sales or cash flows actually be pretty cheap. So there's kind of all these dynamics around value versus growth that, um, like I sit on an investment committee, we use an OCIO and I've sort of watched over the years, their sort of thought process in terms of how they invest as, as allocators move away from style boxes. And we've sort of seen that as well with, um, some of the sophisticated RIAs and advisors that we work with, where this whole value versus growth style box dynamic is less prominent than it was in the past. So I think people are kind of, kind of catching on to it, to that being the case. And hopefully that again, lays the foundations for some, some strong active returns in the future. It's, it's, it's always been so surprising to me how many people still use price to book. I mean, if you look at it, I mean, it has to be the most used value factor by a wide margin. Wouldn't you think? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it must be, I mean, just based on the fact that, um, how much direct indexing has grown and people are using different value versus growth indexes to index those assets as well. Um, it's, it's trillions of dollars. I know OSAM has done some work around fixing price to book. I mean, do you think it's, do you think it's so broken that it can't be fixed or, or do you think there, there are a lot of adjustments you could make and maybe make price to book a more usable number, maybe on par with some of the other value factors? Um, so there's definitely adjustments that you can make. You can adjust for things like intangibles. Intangibles are a massive component of, of valuation. The challenge with intangibles is again, this is a, this is an accounting issue where what do you value it at? What do you value Coke's brand at? Well, Coke has never transacted. It's never been acquired. So we don't know what the value is. We can guess, and there are companies that, that do this, um, but it's, it's, it's imprecise and it's not updating, you know, on a quarter by quarter basis, because in order to value those things, you need to have a transaction. Um, you know, what is the value of Apple's brand? Um, you know, we don't know, we can guess, but we can know. So those things are very important in terms of the earnings power of a company. So you can try and adjust for things like intangibles. Um, you can do adjustments for depreciation. You can do adjustments for, uh, share buybacks. The real key though, with, with price to book is or I should say the real downfall of it is that it's not marked to market. 
So if you look at a sector like financials, which because their balance sheets are mostly a portfolio that gets periodically marked to market, it's, the, it's, it's why financials always show up in the value indexes is because their price to book is always somewhere around one, depending on what the assessment of their portfolio is relative to positioning relative to the market. So if you have, if you're in a case where you can mark the balance sheet to market, price to book works much, much better. That makes sense. Before we get to our standard closing question, there's one more thing I want to ask you based on you, the fact that I know you've looked at a lot of market history. That's sort of what's changed in the wake of the COVID crisis. And, you know, one of the things I struggle with is you've seen a lot of things that maybe we haven't seen in the past. So you've seen the rise of retail traders. You've seen, you know, dramatically increased options activity, which means option dealers are playing a much bigger role in the market. I'm just wondering, do you think there's anything in there that's changed that a long-term investor should be worried about in terms of how we're allocating our, our money? Or, or do you think that's really just going to be noise and maybe, you know, for a long-term investor, that's not really something they need to pay too much attention to? I, I think it's, I find it incredibly interesting. Um, and I do think it's something to, to be aware of because really what it is, is it's, it's a proxy for liquidity and the liquidity that's in the market currently. If liquidity is not ample, these things generally are not happening. Um, so it's a product of interest rates being really, really low. The fact that household balance sheets are um, in the best shape that they've been in decades because of all the stimulus checks that have been delivered. Um, and so the question then becomes, is that going to be persistent over time? And the answer is we don't, we don't know. So if everybody were to return to work, my guess is a lot of that would go away. Uh, return to the office. A lot of that would, would go away because people just have more access to it because they're at home. And again, there's still a lot of people. There are still, I think the number now is around four or 5 million people that are still unemployed relative to the crisis um, or the beginning of the crisis. So that's one thing, the amount of liquidity that's available. The best proxy for the excess liquidity in the system that I've found is the balance in reverse repo balances at the Fed, which is about 1.5 trillion. So once you start to see that start to go down again, um, but so I think that I don't know how long all of those things are sustainable over the long term. Um, you know, like Stanley Druckenmiller would tell you that the two things that drive markets and stocks and assets are really fundamentals and liquidity. And right now there's a lot of liquidity and nobody cares about fundamentals. <laughs> very, very few people do. Um, the only to the, the only, they only do to the extent that they meet analyst earnings expectations on the next quarterly call and that they guide higher. <laughs> like that's really it, um, which is really interesting phenomenon. Again, I think it kind of lays the groundwork for some strong, uh, active management. When I say active, I'm really because we're quantitative investors, I think of active and quantitative sort of synonymously, although I, I know a lot of people don't. Um, so I think it will lay the groundwork for, for some, for factors to do, to do quite well in the future. That makes sense. And just, just to wrap up, we have a standard closing question we ask everybody, which is based on your experience in the markets, if you can impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor, what would it be? Uh, so, you know, if I think back to my experience, so I started investing in, in high school. My golf coach actually got me into investing because we would like ride to these uh, golf matches and he would, this was in the late nineties. So he was on the phone with his broker selling call options on Cisco, um, which ended up not working out <laughs> in the end. Um, so that was a good learning experience in, in and of itself. But um, what I sort of, it took me a long time to figure out is that everybody spends time on what we refer to as security selection, what to buy, which stock to buy. And the sort of gap between, I think, most average investors and most pros is kind of in, it's really twofold. So that the two other aspects of investing that there are very few, I should say one of them, there are very few books about. The other one, there are lots of books about, but they're very sophisticated and they're geared towards institutional investors. So the second aspect that I think average investors need to understand and learn is portfolio construction. So you got to figure out how to size positions appropriately. Because I think what a lot of people sort of do and what I've seen um, is people will get super excited about an investment. They'll do a ton of work on it. And, but it's, you know, one addition to their existing portfolio of like 10 other names. But because they're so excited about it, they always size it the highest. And they usually oversize it. They never want to sell it if there's a, you know, if it goes into a loss position. So there are all these psychological issues. So 
learning how to size positions and manage them, um, I think is unbelievably important, but there's so little information that exists about how to do that. You really have to dig. And then the third com component, um, so security selection, portfolio construction, and the third one is, is risk management, which again, there are tons of books on it, um, but they're not really approachable. It's really all about how to sort of bank your winners and cut your losers really, really quickly. There's actually one book that actually just came to mind. The Zurich Axioms is, is a really great one um, that speaks to sort of risk management, not sort of explicitly, but that's effectively what the rules are. Um, and it's kind of like, um, you know, from a golf perspective, security selection is like that guy that always goes to the driving range and he's always just hitting his driver. Portfolio construction is like the guy that's around like the chipping green, constantly working on his short game. And risk management is like the pro that's on the putting green, just banging out eight and 10 footers, a hundred of them before going on the course, you know? And I, I think that a lot of people kind of miss the second two elements. So it's kind of like studying yourself, keep a trade journal or an investment journal or whatever your preferred style is to invest and sort of measure your win rate, your average wins and losses, things like that to kind of, you know, view yourself in the mirror. I, th I think all of those things will make a lot of people much better investors. I mean, we do it. We do it as a team. We do it all the time. We do it on our strategies, our factors, our themes, everything. Yeah, risk management might be one, particularly that given the environment we're in right now, the people may, uh, may eventually need to learn a lesson in. Yeah, very important. Well, well, thank you. Thank you again for coming on. We really appreciate you giving us the, the time. Um, if people want to find out more about you or about o OSAM, where can they go? Uh, just OSAM.com. Uh, you know, we, we have, we're really big on transparency, so we share whatever we can. We love feedback. Um, I and my team do, do a lot of the writing in addition to, to the other portfolio managers and, um, at the firm. So subscribe, uh, as you guys mentioned at, at the top, I write at factorinvestor.com and have a quasi daily distribution that I do. That's really just kind of like thoughts in the morning. So you can find me there and on, on Twitter at factor investor. Um, but lo love, love feedback, love interacting with people. It's always from our clients and the market um, that we get sort of like the best questions. This, this paper ultimately came from a bunch of client questions that came up in quarterly calls that we decided this is coming up a lot. Let's, you know, let's do some research on it. Um, so love to hear from people. And, and for people who want to read the paper we're talking about in this, in this episode, you, you can find that at osam.com and we'll also link to it directly in the show notes. Um, thank yeah. you again for coming on. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at @jjcarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.